Hold on, let me, while we're doing this, let me swing my new setup down so we can start. Oh, did I scare you? Yeah, uh, I sprung for the uh, $16 scissor arm, so. Nice. Now, now I can actually record a podcast. So what happened to Recopa? Well, that's what I'm, I brought you here to say. The wake will be held uh, Thursday next week, uh, 4 p.m. at the Community Arts Center, uh, oh, Recopa's man. Wishes. Um, yeah, we're retiring Recopa. And I don't even know, we've barely referenced it on the podcast, so I don't even think people know what we're talking about right now. I think we referenced it a lot like episodes three through six. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when we had a bunch of people listening, <laughs> when, when you were when you were doing podcasts out of the trunk of your car, <laughs> <laughs> I was in the back seat so that I could get a better angle into the box. <laughs> I would put Recopa on the center console and then sit in the middle back seat so that it was more comfortable. But then we we recorded in the car. I recorded in the car up until. Maybe it started getting really hot. Around, I think Hubble Space Telescope episode, I almost had heat stroke in the car, so then <laughs> I had to find a new location. So then moved into the closet. wasn't it, wasn't wasn't enough shade to to park under a tree anywhere in the neighborhood. Well, that was the problem because I had to have phone service, so I was parked on the roof of the parking garage. <laughs> <laughs> like full view of sun, but I thought you were like part of like uh, the Silicon Valley telecom corridor area of America. Doesn't everybody have like seven G out there? No, no, we just got COVID. Oh, well, well, at least you're like everyone else. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, except they don't have this sweet scissor arm here. I'm so impressed with this thing. Is it spring-loaded? Oh, buddy, is it spring-loaded. Do you need awesome. to see this action? Hold on. Let me turn turn you so you can see. Um, if you can see past the uh, raincoat. All right, ready? <laughs> Whoa, yeah. Yeah. It's spring-loaded, and it, it uh, locks in place wherever you put it. It locks in place wherever I put it. So I can pretend that I'm Dan saying, swing that mic right in front of your face. and uh, But it doesn't have that squeak, 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 squeak effect whenever you Not only it, does like... it not have that, I don't know if you can see uh, what the microphone is in. That is a uh, shock-absorbing holder right mm. there. So It's going to really help out when you really get throaty and start doing your death metal screams. Right. Uh, that's really the impetus for getting this. What's never ending to find the beginning that came before everything? Like kids with decoders discover the wonder in the We didn't 
Um, I was trying to figure out though, I almost ran into a problem after purchasing <laughs> because I was looking on a, a place to clamp it in this closet. Mm-hmm. And um, the thing with closets is they also have bars to put hangers on. Yeah. And those tend to be right under the ledges. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Couldn't find a good clamp. Luckily, we've got these built in, a, a built in bookshelf in the closet. Um, because you don't want to display those for everybody. No, no, but no. Yeah. Books are for private. Right. Um, now I just got to figure out how to put this pop screen so that I can still read my screen. But onward and upward. I guess I guess you could have got paid like another 30 bucks and got like a microphone stand and then use that to clamp the arm onto that stand and then you could set it up anywhere. You don't have to worry about like you know, hmm. closet situation. You could say, "Hey, I'm going to do the podcast on the back porch today. It's nice outside." Yeah. <laughs> I wish I could record outside, but uh, for whatever reason, every single morning I go out there, um, the guy that takes care of like the bushes and everything, got to start up his chainsaw and <laughs> leaf blower uh, combination. You know, got to keep those bushes nice and symmetrical. Yeah, they're digging a um, fifty-foot deep hole right next to my house right now. I'm, they've been doing construction outside my house for like five months now and replacing all the storm sewer going up and down the street. It's a big city project. Anyway, in order to do it, you know, they don't tear up the streets. They dig down and then do it from underneath the street um, so they don't have to just completely remove the streets, which makes it a pretty arduous construction project because a lot of it is tunneling and everything. So just... Every day for like the last five months, it's starting at like six thirty, seven in the morning. We get the beep, beep, beep of all the stuff turning it on, all the backhoes and everything warming up. And now because they have the shaft all dug at night, they have to run like a ventilation system through a generator to keep the air ventilated out because they're going to have guys working down there, you know, during the day. <laughs> so that thing just runs all night and it's like right outside of our bedroom window. <laughs> and the worst part is, is that it's just pumping just diesel fumes directly into the backyard, just like exhausting oh, no. directly into our backyard. So, I mean, the house is all sealed up. It's closed. The windows are closed and everything. But somehow either through the air conditioning system, like drawing in air from the outside or something, it's still like the fumes invade. Like every morning, I feel like I'm woken up by by the fumes all the time. So I don't know what to do. Maybe maybe I'll get to sue the city of Dallas when I die young because of <laughs> diesel fume exposure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how long is this supposed to take? Uh, I think they're supposed to be done by November. I think that's the last thing I saw. But it's it's like, um, you know, a project that was needed to be done 20 years ago. And so they said, oh, well, we'll put a bond package together to do it in five. And then they said, oh, but thanks for that bond package, but we're going to use that for something else. Uh, what if we do another bond package in five years to do it then? And so now we're 20 years later and they're finally doing it all at the same time, which has kind of worked out because it's mostly been during the pandemic. So less traffic and everything. Yeah. But 
<clears throat> yeah, when you wait so long to do stuff, things that would have been easy maintenance projects at the time become like wholesale <laughs> renovation projects that take a lot longer. A uh, lesson are in you governance. expecting it? <laughs> are you expecting it to take longer than that, though? Oh yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure it'll go in into Texas. next year. It'll it'll go into next year. I'm I'm not doubting. I'm not. Don't have my hopes up at all. And you know, if we had an engineering school in the state, then maybe. yeah, yeah, yeah. And if like TechSdot, full of transportation engineers, just happened to take only people from that one engineering school in the state, that would be good too. But I guess they just don't do that. No, they. It would be too complicated to uh, have some education. Well, you don't want to like push out the the poultry science department mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, because key, you know. Yeah. How Chickens else would we learn that antibiotics were going to cause us superbugs if not for a poultry science department? Right. Ag sciences is the most important of the sciences when you get mm-hmm. down to it. And we need an active uh, undergraduate military, mm-hmm. active duty. Well, not the military. They're, oh, they're not the military. Hmm. They're Hate just to learn that they just wear costumes, and some of them are in the band. <laughs> <laughs> but some of them join, right? Hey, you know, maybe. But it has nothing to do with them, uh, you know, playing ROTC dress up at college. Are you telling me that students at other universities can also join the military? Yeah, you don't. Wow. It's it's weird, and you don't even get like a preferential like officer placement. You just go in like the right re- all like the regular schlubs, even the uh, even those kids that signed up right out of high school. You're just like one of them. <laughs> yeah, that uh, they love that. I think when you show up there, uh, being raised by a marine, I. I heard plenty of stories of like the first few days when they were getting yelled at and uh, one of his fellow, uh, I'll say trainees, whatever, um, was telling the uh, drill sergeant that he was in junior ROTC, so he understands. (laughs) I came in with this haircut. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't have to shave my head when I walked through the door. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, uh, but I'm not getting vaccinated. No, oh, that would be against the law. Hey, but well, good good news this morning. Uh, Biden's going to require all uh, schools, all public schools, you know, pre K through twelve, to uh, do regular uh, standard testing for coronavirus now amongst all teachers and students and staff. So instead of it just being like, oh, there's a kid with the sniffles or, oh, Miss Johnson from the administrator's office, she can't, a positive test. Now you guys just on the honor system, please go get a test on your own and tell us it was negative. We're not doing the honor system testing thing anymore. We're actually going to like do it for real to, to, you know, get a, get an idea of what the community spread is amongst this population. (laughs) It's going to be pretty neat. Did he decide that because he realized he was on pace to 
uh, tie Trump with number of deaths? <laughs> I, I think I think he did it because uh, after yesterday, uh, a quarter of a million kids uh, were uh, positive. This is the number, the highest day of child uh, <laughs> child positivity ever, um, just in this country. Uh, so. I think that was the big impetus for it, um, but also because he's. I think they're just about to be like, uh, "Fuck this, uh, this, this freedom of choice bullshit." Because he also initiated the mandate that all federal employees have to be vaccinated, and if you're not, you either going to be terminated or you go on unpaid leave. So, we're getting to the push coming to shove point. I think. Maybe it got uncomfortable <laughs> enough that we're going to well, do some real vaccination mandates. <laughs> we know Joe Biden's good at shoving people, so. <laughs> shoving them right in the back. <laughs> well, that's good. Um, can't wait for those lawsuits. That'll be fun to read. And in the follow-up good news to our um, abortion episode last week, the entire country of Mexico their version of oh, the Supreme yeah. Court, uh, decriminalized all forms of abortion inside the whole country. And the people that were in prison or had paid fines because of past um, breaking past abortion laws, those people are going to be released and refunded. So pretty big changes. Although I learned that their Supreme Court is kind of interesting. I think it's 10 people, but if eight of them all agree, it becomes... Like not just a, it becomes the new precedent for the entire country. So nothing can then supersede the law. Mm. It do, it doesn't have to if it's it can they can have debates and like can have s- just slight majorities like six four. But if it's like an eight two majority, then that that one's settled. We're not talking about it anymore. That's pretty interesting. Um, can you imagine? something becoming some bit legal and then letting people out of prison <laughs> only if it was had to do with alcohol that's about the only way i can imagine it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah man weird um good for them i saw that this really only affected like one uh is it state like it, it said it was like a border state with texas i think mm-hmm. um but I don't know. Believe it or not, I'm not up to speed on law in Mexico. <laughs> yeah, I think that's what it was. Like it's a, uh, it was them um, hearing an appeal from uh, a specific state or region, having an, uh, an appeal to a law, and then because it was such an overwhelming majority at that highest court, uh, okay. it became the law for the entire country. Oh, okay. Well, interesting system. Um, maybe maybe that number of justices should be added to ours. Yeah, I don't know if they have lifetime appointments either there, or if it's just like term out or how you get appointed as a justice in Mexico either. Man, I've never bought that argument that if you didn't have lifetime appointments, then, well, they just go crazy at the end of their 
Uh, you know, <laughs> it's like, what? They can go crazy at any point now. And at the end of their term, they would just hear all these cases that no one ever thought anyone would listen to. And all of a sudden, marrying dogs would be legal. And, you know, it just it would just be hell on earth. Well, can't wait for that. Um, so I guess we can stay on our topic that we were originally planning on uh, Yay! recording last week. I got to say, I uh, needed to refresh very quickly this morning, so mm-hmm. um, I will probably be skipping around a lot, but you shared an interesting article on the evolution of sleep uh, two weeks ago, three weeks ago? Yes. Um, tell me all about it. Uh, the reason this one was interesting to me is because, well, sleep in and of itself is just interesting. People talk about it all the time, especially most of it, though, is all in human contexts. And whenever we talk about sleep, whether it's with our friends or we're actually like trying to nail down, you know, are we getting enough? Are we not getting enough? Is are we getting quality sleep? What's the difference between like quality sleep and not quality sleep? How does it affect our work life and our social relationships and all that? It seems like we never end up really actually talking about the sleep part of it. We talk more about what our brain is doing when we are asleep. Mm, yeah. You know, like that's kind of how everyone ends up talking about it. They talk about it from a very brains, human brain centric perspective. And even if you ever like, do sleep studies or looked at a lot of scientific studies about sleep. It's about um, putting electrodes on people's heads and having them go to sleep in fMRI machines and seeing what their brain, <laughs> what their brain activity is like in those types of things, and then trying to derive correlations for different regions of the brain, what's happening, what the necessity of it is, and the issue with that from an evolutionary perspective is that humans are not the only thing that sleeps and our brain is a very fine tuned thing that has evolved over millions of years through lots of different primate species. And the one that's in the human primate species is specifically finely attuned to our social and behavioral experiences that we've had in the last hundred thousand years or so. But, Lots of other things sleep. In fact, Mm -hmm. everything sleeps. Like, plants sleep. (laughs) Uh, Things that don't have brains at all sleep. Things that don't even have, like, neural cells sleep. So to always look at it from this sort of brain activity angle and, oh man, I, you know, slept with my Apple Watch on and so now I can see, like, what my sleep activity was like and how much efficient sleep I got based upon, like, my brain activity and all that information is good and useful information for trying to figure things out. But I don't think any of that ever really addresses the question about why do we sleep? It's, it's more like, okay, we all understand we sleep. Now let's uh, try to decode it. Like this, the actual evolution of sleep has very little to do with uh, our brain cognition, has very little to do with you know, just specific primate mammalian behavior. Um, Sleep has a lot more to do with 
four and a half billion years of evolution on a rotating planet around the sun on a 24-hour cycle? And how do we necessarily figure out what is useful in humans from that perspective is, is kind of what I'm interested in. Because we hear a lot of like um, capitalistic commodification of sleep talk. Like, man, you don't need so much sleep or you can figure out how to cram a power nap into the afternoon and you're, you can get four more productive work hours out of the day and all the, all those types of things, which is more about like, you could be a better working human. You could be a better piece of human capital if you could optimize your sleeps. And then once those sleeps are optimized, then you are the most profitable that you could ever be for our capitalist society. And that's the other sort of thing that's I found interesting in research on this. A lot of the research is funded specifically from those motivations. Like, how can we you know, incentivize a 15 hour workday? How can we make it so that soldiers can go two weeks without sleeping? How can we make it so that cops can stay on patrol for 48 hours at a time? Like those are the, (laughs) the funding reasons behind a lot of these research studies. It's not scientific evolutionary research. It's for commodifying the, these traits and how to turn these people into bigger profit generating senators for the corporations and the higher ups that they work for. So it's, it's very, um, it's kind of a a sticky web once you get into how we understand sleep and especially how modern sleep is foisted upon humanity and the way it's advertised and the way it's talked about in popular science. Yeah. Uh, it's very interesting too, because it's what good timing, uh, that we just had labor day, the American labor holiday. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, specifically put in September because the government didn't want American laborers understanding that there was an international labor movement uh, <laughs> happening. In we May. don't know, but we're isolationists. We don't know anything about the rest of the world. Right, right. Though I do believe that the uh, eight hours of work, eight hours of sleep, eight hours for what we will, uh, that came from America, I think. Yeah. Um, America was a big, a big proponent, actually, of can't remember what country it was was it england or somewhere some european country for getting like May Day off the ground ah. you know getting i some i can't remember this we've is talked all. about this once before i think too okay um so it's it's pretty interesting too that you have this like commodification of sleep mentality uh but that certainly, one, is human-centric, and two, is, as you're saying, like capitalist-centric, because we can look at these other groups of humans, too, and how they've slept, um, say, like those different tribes who still operate in the hunter-gatherer mm-hmm. sort of societal structure. There's only a couple of them that still exist, like one in mm-hmm. India and a couple in Africa. <laughs> There's not that yeah. many to, that you can find and like study. This is, you know, pre-industrial humanity. <laughs> yeah. And it, what's even weird about those, though, is it's, yeah, that's that's the modern version of those groups of people, too. So mm-hmm. how much has that even changed with planes flying overhead or something that might disrupt uh, sleep patterns. But it's pretty funny, uh, you know, as far as 
the sleep studies go, it that's also everything in science, unfortunately. Like, all of it is funded by the military uh, yeah. in the U.S. So once you can finally get some scientists to look into why do we sleep, uh, it seems like you could actually get some good answers on ways to improve sleep and improve lives for people because it's it's not just um so that your body can rest no and i think there's like this misunderstanding of a lot of sleep because of the way that we behave whenever we've had not great sleep or when we've de been deprived sleep and, you know, we get cranky or we feel like we forget things or we've had the experience where we're on a long, you know, road trip and we start like nodding and we can't keep ourselves awake. So we're slapping ourselves in the face and playing music real loud. Um, we, we understand that there are deficiencies, which is we we want to not have these performance deficiencies. <clears throat> But the understanding also comes from genetically, there isn't necessarily an imperative that says if you sleep for 12 hours, you will be better off than if you sleep for seven hours and you will be better off than if you slept three hours. The, these types of understandings of sleep are very antiquated. And even though they seem intuitive to us because of our lived experience, they don't actually hold up to a historical or an anthropological analysis of human behavior going back in the past. And there's like these actual sleep anthropologists. It's like it's like a real scientific position. Uh, one named David Sampson in Toronto from the University of Toronto. I was reading a bunch of his research because what he's focused on is trying to understand things from a evolutionary and genomic base um, and then basically using things that he can observe in modern industrialized humans looking at those few hunter-gatherer types of tribes that are still isolated that we can see as an analog to primitive um, humans and then also using the archaeological record um, of different societies going back thousands of years and deriving what we can from their lived experience of sleep. And then comparing that with non-human primates and non-human mammals and even, you know, non-thinking um, or brain-having organisms to, to really understand where the correlations from the very first genetic underpinnings of sleep came from from the earliest parts of evolution. And sort of the snapshot of the findings are that hunter-gatherers, especially the ones that still exist today, they typically sleep about six hours a night. And their sleep efficiency is pretty good. It's around 85%. <clears throat> sleep efficiency is another thing that I learned a lot about, but it's basically the amount of time that you are lying down that you are actually in the deep stage three level sleep. You're going into your REM cycle and you're doing you're doing the full restorative sleep, not just fluttering on the very surface of it. And that took a while to develop evolutionarily. 
Um, cause if, as you look in non-human primates and as you look in like other animals like herbivores and things like that, they have much less sleep efficiency. Um, and they sleep for much shorter durations, but that makes a lot of sense because if you are a gazelle on the, on the plains, your ability to rest and actually have a complete drawdown of your awareness and have this whole like sleep dream life of brain activity would make you very vulnerable to all the predators that are lurking about, especially all the big cats and everything in the safari, in the savannah, um, who usually hunt at night. So their sleep cycles are very short. Um, it's very efficient for those short periods so they can get as much as they can, but they're, the durations are very long, are very short. And the times at which they're laying down, um, they're doing these sort of short cycle sleeps where they might be in a deep cycle of sleep for 15, 20 seconds. And then the rest of the time they're just fluttering in this almost awake state so that if anything happens, if a rustle in the grass happens, they can immediately run away. Um, which from the early primate um, aspect makes sense too, because from early primates, they would be sleeping in trees. Um, and one, if you're during your waking hours, if you're living your whole life in the trees, because there's much larger predators on the ground, um, the, your conscious awareness when you're awake has to be so full on all the time in order to be moving from branch to branch because one miss, one miscalculation of anything could be a death fall, you know, down to the, down to the forest floor. So, um, your amount of attention that you have when you're awake leads to a much more exhausted sleep cycle. And, but the sleep cycle you have in the tree, because you are, you know, worried about falling and worried about those things is not a very deep sleep and it's very short duration. And it's why we still have that sensation of uh when you could be laying down in your bed but you jerk yourself awake it's because uh you still have this part of you that is there from when you used to sleep in the trees and if you slightly you know got off your center of gravity you would wake yourself up immediately to prevent yourself from falling out of the tree so that still exists it's all there but humans We've become so comfortable in our modern lifestyle and the way that we can protect ourselves with houses and all of these things that like our sleep, modern sleep is better than the evolutionary sleep ever of any of our past ancestors. So to think like we're really fucking up, fucking it up now, like, oh, man, we've got so many lights and distractions and work and oh, I'm just never getting enough sleep. On average, we're getting more sleep than our ancestors did, and we're getting much more high-quality sleep than our ancestors ever did. So that's kind of a weird trade-off if you're if you're feeling like, oh, sleep is the deterioration of humanity right now because everyone's so sleep-deprived. That's the the data seems to suggest it's the opposite. Yeah, it seems to also be some sort of correlation with our brain activity, uh, just because the the monkey brain is not doing, you know, algebra, and right. I'm just flush with algebra throughout the day. <laughs> just, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
the the like hunter gatherer groups though it's kind of interesting because it appears that there's some different theories one from like this uh dr samson and then another from can't can't remember their name um too many notes uh but they they studied like some of these hunter gatherer groups to see their sleep patterns and i know the dr samson guy found that they sleep on average for like what 6.25 hours mm-hmm. um and and it increases an hour in the winter the duration of sleep increases an hour in the winter time so when the days are shorter and it's colder outside everyone on average sleeps one hour longer than they do when the days are longer in the summertime hmm. which is another uh, sort of interesting fact that kind of uh if you don't have anything better to do than sleep, then sleep type of... <laughs> right. I, I'm not going to get very much use out of this extra hour in the wintertime because there's not nearly as much stuff to gather. There's probably less prey to hunt. And it's probably cold. And uh, I'm trying to stay warm and huddled with my, you know, gatherer hunter group inside of our lodging. Um, yeah. So we're all just going to sleep an extra hour. <laughs> That's just the way that it goes. There's sort of an interesting division, too, among the breakdown of age groups. Age seems to be one of the biggest factor mm-hmm. in the uh, style and pattern of sleep. And it's kind of funny because looking at these groups, you can see the same patterns in our society, but they don't necessarily make sense in our society they do make sense in a hunter-gatherer sort of setting where children go to sleep get sleepy um way earlier uh in the day when most people are still awake and i'm sure everybody with a kid is probably very like no this doesn't happen at all Uh, yeah but they don't have like ipads that are uh you know available to interact with so the kids get sleepy the kids go to sleep much sooner when most people are awake and you can think of this in an evolutionary perspective this is my sort of hypothesis on it um that i'm now going to convince everyone of and that totally makes sense that you would want the kids to go to sleep first while everyone else is awake because during that kind of dusk part of the day it is dangerous like Mm -hmm. it's not bright enough to see things but it's not dark enough that you can like then distinguish it's like a weird kind of haze and the predators Um, can see better than you can at that time right so you would want most people to be able to protect the most vulnerable the children who are going to sleep Uh, then you typically have the adults like the parents go to sleep and the older uh you know elderly groups go to sleep and the teenagers stay up later Mm -hmm. they are just more prone to staying up late and somebody in some of these groups there's there's always somebody awake when everybody else is asleep who is a teenager who is more has better vision um you know, more prone to being awake just generally Mm -hmm. and has better reaction time, hearing, all of that kind of stuff. Totally makes sense in this setting. Then uh, early morning, the elderly group wake up first 
and they sort of take over that role so that the teenagers can then uh, retire. Sleep in. So, They're going to sleep in, man. Man, don't <laughs> so, wake me up until noon, man. <laughs> all right, Twisted Sister. Um, it is It is a very segmented sort of pattern among these humans, too, that can totally make sense from the aspect of we're protecting the vulnerable groups throughout the night. Uh, that doesn't make sense when you've then structured things societally that, well, no, teenagers still need education, so they've got to get up at 8 in the morning uh, just as much as the, you know, five-year-olds need to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the segmentation is very odd. But the weirder thing with humans, and this is one thing that I had read like years ago, uh, was like segmented sleep. Um, it was theorized that groups, like hunter-gatherer groups, used to have segmented sleep where they would sleep for... They would have a first sleep and then a second sleep. Yeah, yeah. And there would be some waking time in between. Uh, this is like, you can find articles on both sides of this argument. One being, well, cavemen used to, you know, wake at night and converse with people around the fire and tell stories. And, um, you know, it, it's, but then you find like uh, Samson, I, I believe Samson had studied these hunter-gatherer groups and saw no segmented sleep. There yeah. was somebody awake, but it's not the segmented sleep. Yeah, there's no defined, like, all right, we sleep for five hours, and then in the afternoon we take our three-hour segmented mm-hmm. second sleep. There's no, like, uh, designed cultural siesta type of right. moment. But it's very interesting once you start to see, uh, if you're following along this segmented sleep, theory um once people started moving into europe more they had longer nights and one of the theories for why there was more segmented sleep in europe as opposed to equatorial societies uh is because the lo- the night is just so long that it's like what mm. what are we what else have we got to do uh so much so that this one guy uh Eckrich, has found over 500 sort of medieval and earlier references to the segmented sleep and found that it was talked about in such a way that it was considered common practice in like the 16th century. Um, There's like a 16th century doctor uh, book, which, you know, (laughs) take doctor with a grain of salt yeah. back then, but they had suggested that uh, if people were trying to conceive and have a child, that they should not have sex after a long day's labor. They should have it after the first sleep so that they're more restful, they enjoy it more, and do it better. <laughs> These are like direct quotes. Um, and so it's kind of interesting that you see this shift. Uh, it's considered part of the reason too why paris being the city of lights uh was the first city to you know illuminate itself at night uh seems to be some you know relation to this kind of pattern of sleep that people were up and out and social at this time Mm -hmm. what's funny is you start to see around that same time 
that they light the city up, you see a segmentation in the classes. The the rich, uh, you know, the elites, maybe some of the bourgeoisie were not out because they were like, well, that is for, like, the poor people to yeah. do, to, like, go out and talk to each other. I'm going to stay up and read a book. Um, so you start to see sort of this segmentation, and as industrialization slowly creeps in, the laboring group uh, gets pushed more hours at the factory so they have fewer hours to sleep and it sort of squeezes out this segmented sleep time Mm. where they're needing to fit in all of their sleep uh, in one go at night because they have got to put in 16 hours at the factory whereas the elites don't necessarily have to so there was still a culture of you know being awake at night sort of philosophizing or uh, you know, doing whatever. So it's kind of it's kind of interesting that you, all of this works together, in such a neat way that you can't just point to one thing of saying, well, uh, we're just a modern society. It's like, well, it's like, actually squeezed out that that social time mm-hmm. from the lower classes. Yeah, yeah, and not only not only is it squeezing out the social like now. That is a hangover that is in a lot of the psychological research on this too, like to current times. Um, like there is this tendency to think that people basically the evolution dictates that we can either be nocturnal or diurnal. We can't really be both. Like we need on this sort of binary on awareness time and this off not awareness time um based upon how like everything has evolved so uh the lots of human beings are on a nocturnal cycle whether that's out of necessity or because that's how they they feel better operating on a nighttime schedule so that's when they've decided to you know do their socialization and everything and that's when they would do things but the people that are on a nocturnal schedule are more associated with uh, doing nefarious things than right. the people who are on a diurnal or diurnal schedule. So, the even if it's just like that's your job as a nurse, and you have the the seven p.m. to six a.m. shift, like the idea is that there there is a higher level of like substance abuse and a higher level of uh people doing uh things that would i guess be considered uh bad to the rest of society whether it's like cheating on your boyfriend or uh, uh just different stuff like that there's a higher instance of those things amongst the psychological analysis amongst the nocturnal sect of people and it's not necessarily that those instances are happening more at night than they are during the day it's more that everyone whether you are a daytime person or a nighttime person views the nighttime activities as more bad leaning more more evil or more you know treacherous activities so not only is it just the daytime people pointing at the nighttime people saying "Ooh, those are bad guys 
the nighttime people, because that's like sort of the societal understanding of as we've come to this modern industrialized age, the nighttime people also believe that about themselves. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's it's not like there's this war of 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 philosophies going on between the two groups and the nighttime people are saying, no, no, it's you daytime people that are doing all the crimes and doing all the bad stuff. The nighttime people are like, yeah, yeah. You know, we're we're doing stuff at night and only bad things happen. <laughs> like they all buy into it too. <laughs> so the, so if anything, like if you do happen to like take on night shifts, there is a correlative likelihood that you might become you might be hired to uh, abuse alcohol and drugs when you get off your shift at five AM before you go back home and go go to your day sleep. Like there, there, there are these things that you kind of resign yourself that I am now this character. I'm, I'm a character of the night. And so these things are the characteristics of a character of the night and I have to adopt them. I remember I, in high school was like hanging out with some friends. I think I probably came home at like, I don't know, 12, 10, 12 five, something like that. And my stepdad just, uh, haranguing me saying nothing good happens after like midnight <laughs> what <laughs> i i work at the movie theater i regularly work there until 2 30 in the morning it's <laughs> nothing good nothing good yeah. okay well <laughs> can i quit no you're gonna kick me out of the house okay um but what's interesting too uh one final thing on this sort of segmented sleep uh, in the early 90s, there was a psychiatrist that conducted an experiment where they had a group of people in a dark room that was like pitch black for 14 hours every day um, for an entire month. And it took some time for these people to understand when sleep time was. Mm -hmm. um, but what was interesting is by the fourth week, they had completely settled into a distinct sleep pattern where they slept for four hours and then were awake for one or two hours and social and then slept for another four hours. So it's also kind of like uh, lends credence to that theory that maybe the European groups with longer nights sort of started having, developing this second sleep pattern um, it could be interesting, though, because it's just, uh, you know, as you say, like, the it tends to be the more nefarious group. It is also, like, what else is there to do? Right. Um, and it's funny because the modern segmented sleep does exist in plenty of cultures still. Uh, it's just given different reasons for existing, like the you know, uh, I guess Spanish kind of siesta culture. Typically, it's not everybody gets sleepy, so we need to close everything. <laughs> we, we all, we're always getting so full at lunch. We got to right. take a nap. <laughs> it's it, that's It coincides with the hottest time of the day. Uh -huh. And if you don't have air conditioning, then it's brutal. Nobody even wants to go out. So, yeah. you know why not just uh, catch a wink? So it's kind of, um, it's funny. It, it, I mean, I don't know how much you've known about this, like in Japan, but people sleep in public there. 
oh, all yeah? the time. They just nod it's, off on benches and stuff, or is it? Yes. And the like, cops don't wake them up and say, hey, buddy. No. Go sleep at your I mean, apartment. <laughs> the cops will, if it's late at night, uh, cops will, like, wake people up and make sure they're not, like, too drunk or, you know, dying. Um, of course, people fall asleep on sidewalks, like, like seriously, <laughs> will just lay down on the sidewalk, um, fall asleep on a bench at a train station, fall asleep on the train, wind up in a different prefecture and have to, you know, catch mm-hmm. a cab or stay in a hotel there. Um, so it's a pretty common occurrence. And what's funny, though, is it's it also correlates with the work culture there is it it's kind of like a you know people stay at the office super late they typically people will not leave the office unless the boss leaves and even then they still feel social pressure from their coworkers to not leave until everybody leaves at once don't be the first one out <laughs> right but it's not like a whole lot of work's getting done during that yeah. time. Um, but it's kind of, it, it's weird because it seems like, from my perspective, the sleeping, like being so open, showing that you're going to fall asleep on the train to a work meeting feels kind of like showing I've worked so hard that I like can't even stay asleep. I don't know. It's it's weird. Um, Miho's entire family can fall asleep like in in 30 seconds they're like dogs (laughs) it's wild man (laughs) um but yeah so humans have weird sleep patterns that's my conclusion (laughs) well the uh the to piggyback on that a little bit the the idea of you know the work culture being the way that it is and so you stay at work longer even though that doesn't necessarily mean you're being as productive that's the very similar to the uh, behavioral findings of sleep. Like uh, the people that stay in bed for only six hours and then their alarm goes off and they get up and they go, they have incredible, they have shown to have incredibly efficient sleep. Like above 85% of the time in the bed, they are asleep in that time. The longer you, st- you are in bed, not 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 asleep, but the longer that you are in your bed laying down, the beyond that six hour point, the less efficient the sleep becomes. So you can stay in your bed for 12 hours, but your sleep efficiency is going to drop dramatically, especially in like those last five hours. It's going to you're not going to have very efficient sleep at all. You might nod off and then wake back up and then nod off and you're pressing the snooze button and you nod off again, you wake back up. You're not ever getting any into like the third and fourth stage of sleep. You're not you're you're not ever getting beyond this very sort of a hazy in-between level of awake and sleepiness. And that's why you kind of you can stay in bed for 12 hours and you can feel like you didn't really sleep at all you know, when you, when you get up and walk around and why some people like, this is an an interesting study that was done predominantly of doctors and, uh, who are going through residency and basically how they're on such fucked up schedules. Like they can't ever find time for sleep and they're having to like, you know, 
oh God, I finally got 15 minutes off. I'm going to go lean in the corner and catch a few Z's type of thing. Um, Because their sleep gets so fragmented and they never have a long duration to just sleep, they only have these short windows where they can catch some here and there, their sleep is almost 100% efficient. But it's in such short bursts that even though they're getting 100% efficient sleep in those bursts, they never feel the recuperation. The, the, every, the, the tiredness from the previous day still builds on and builds on and builds on, um, even though they're having 100% efficient sleep. So you can be the person that gets 100% efficient sleep and only sleeps for two hours a night. <laughs> and you can you know, say, I'm 100% efficient, but that's not necessarily getting you what you need either. Um, so that's why kind of there's this, uh, sort of uh, sweet spot that looks like it exists of around six to six and a half hours of where you can optimize the efficient sleep, but then you don't start to venture into the area of diminishing returns by staying in bed longer and ruining that efficiency. So how is it that, uh, say you have a day off and you plan on sleeping in, um, why would it feel like you get more rest? Is it almost that the mentality going into the sleep is I'm going to get get as much rest as I need? Um, it depends on different things. Like if you're actually able to divorce yourself from all the expectational anxiety hangover that you have from your job be on the day off so that you can, okay, you know, actually sleep in, then you can't, then yeah, you know, that that's a working hypothesis. But most people become so habitually set up that every morning I've got this anxiety thing that's going to kick in that says I've got a to-do list of all of these things and all of these responsibilities I've got to take care of that whether or not your alarm goes off to wake you up or not, that thing, your brain starting to work on the expectations of the day is what's going to wake you up no matter what. So that's why it's often hard for people who finally go on that vacation after six straight months of working and they're like, oh man, I can't wait to catch up on all this sleep. And then they're still waking up at five o'clock every single morning when they're on the beach or whatever. And they don't know why it's that it's because their brain is scheduled. It's scheduled to start to do these functions. And it's because of the brain chemistry. Like, um, serotonin plays a huge role in sleep as does norepinephrine and dopamine and the different levels of those in different parts of your sleep um, either keep you, you know, sedated or they start to wake you up and bring you out of that. Um, And so as as your brain chemistry gets on a very regimented cycle because of your daily habitual nature and the things that you encounter every day, then those chemicals will start to fire without really having like a stimulant. Like you don't have to have a situation that stimulates your, you you know, the chemicals to flood your brain. They just know that this is the time based upon the circadian rhythm that I'm going to flood the brain with this chemical and that's going to start, you know, the waking up process. Mm hmm. Um, that could, maybe I wonder, because the, the hunter gatherer groups do have like pretty quality sleep. And I remember reading that, uh, one reason for it was that they, uh, it's defined almost with flexibility 
in mind mm-hmm. of their their it's not necessarily a habitual lifestyle so you wake up the next day and you got to solve that day's problems mm-hmm. as opposed to waking up every day and drive the kids to school and then log in and all that kind of stuff post you know and there there, post. there is a weird trade off too where if you're in a hunter gatherer society like the two of that um uh Samson evaluated in one of his research studies um one group they're they're based they're from the same tribe but they're like located in two different part two different regions one sect of this tribe just built coverings over their lodging so it was just like uh just a roof and then people would lay under the roof and there would be like a fire pit in the middle but no walls and another sect of this uh tribe would take the time to like get individual bamboo strands and like build walls around their around their huts um, mm. the bamboo strands were still incredibly drafty, lots of gaps in them. So like insect, it didn't prevent you from getting like mosquitoes and stuff in the night to wake you up. It didn't really protect you from like weather from it getting cold outside. Cause it's all drafty. It's just sort of more for privacy and then for any like giant predators to give them one, you know, one barrier that would before they can get to you Mm -hmm. um and so part of the study of the quality of sleep was that the people in the uh in the walled part of the tribe they had longer durations of sleep and their sleep cycles had these longer ebbs and flows where they would go into the deeper sleep for longer periods of time but the tribe that left the left the walls open had this sort of flexibility thing while it didn't necessarily mean that they had the greatest deepest sleep when they were asleep they had the nature of they weren't going to be suddenly aroused and then all groggy and not knowing what was going on because they had the sense that at any moment they might need to get up and do something they might need to Mm -hmm. get up because rain was coming in they might need to get up to move their kids around because they rolled out from under the canopy they might there they that was sort of the thing that was always present at the top of their mind even when they were in their um unawareness cycle of sleep the thing that was right there on the tip of it was oh man i might need to wake up real quick to handle something And, um, so they, while they didn't have the deeper sleep, like the walled community, they didn't show the, the deteriorous effects in the morning of being all groggy or like in the middle of the night being woken up and not knowing where you were and having to take some time to figure out your surroundings and that type of thing. Hmm. That's interesting. And Uh, all it was, the only difference was bamboo walls. (laughs) Yeah. That's weird. Uh, that reminds me though, uh, one thing that can wake people like especially the older elderly groups um is the wavelength of light that Mm -hmm. comes in so i wonder if that's also something to do with like the walled community uh older people will tend to you know wake up and not really know you know they think it's way too early like why am i awake at this time 
Yeah, but, all, all my grandparents would always wake up at 4 a.m. or 3.30 yeah. a.m. <laughs> like, what? You're try- they're, wake- they're waking up to go sit on the porch and wait for the newspaper to be thrown in the driveway so then they can get it to start reading it. <laughs> Sounds kind of nice. Um, but they, that is the morning. Like, you, you start to have some light from the sun around that time. Mm-hmm. And it seems to be that the light waves that wake people are light waves that do come from the sun, not campfire light, though. Yeah. Which is very cool that the wavelength of light from campfires doesn't wake people, uh, which, again, just shows you kind of how all of this has developed over time from... In humans from, you know, early cave cave living. Well, and all the way from plants, because it's the plants that, like we talked about at the, you know, the beginning of everything in life, like the plants start and they're on this, this cycle of basically being exposed to the light for half the day and the other half the day they're not exposed to light. So, like, we really have to think of this pre you know organism pre animal organism type of thought process when you're thinking about the um environment at which sleep evolved so plants for lack of a better word they had to make a decision <laughs> mm-hmm. like um the 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 selected trait was if you are able to do some uh house cleaning kind of activities when at nighttime where you are not getting a direct source of energy from the sun and we all know like photosynthesis i don't know if everyone remembers from earth science in seventh grade but photosynthesis while awesome is incredibly inefficient like the amount of sunlight that hits a leaf that the leaf then turns into energy for its plant is only like one percent to two percent that it takes from what's actually being hit the amount of photons that are hitting the surface of that leaf um so while it's that's pretty efficient imagine how inefficient you know getting energy as a plant is when you're on the dark side of the planet away from the sun yeah so you you're doing like all of your incredibly slow time deep time movements that you do as a plant when you're in the sun while you're getting this source of energy and then you've got to figure out how to store a little bit of that so that you can do like some house cleaning duties on the dark side when you're not getting a direct energy source. So you got to hold on to enough of it to stay alive and then do some stuff so that you don't die when you're not in the sun so that by the time you come around to the sun again, you're ready to recharge and do, do the day all over again. And part of those genes are the genes that are inside of us too. Like the genes that started at that plant are part of us. So we all, that's like more the evolution of the circadian rhythm. But without that, you don't end up with any more complex organisms that do this sleep trick as an evolved strategy for survival. And really, when you think about this, I always go back to just sort of this opportunity cost type of calculation. Because mm-hmm. in sort of a big scheme of things, from an evolutionary means, it seems like sleep would be very detrimental to the survival of a species. 
like if you sleep a lot, you're most likely to get eaten or you're not you're going to miss out on a on a lot of opportunities to procreate. Mm-hmm. So if you're sleeping a third of your life, that's a whole lot of missed opportunities to pass your genes on. And that's a whole lot of opportunities for other things to eat you or kill you <laughs> as well to make sure that you don't pass your genes on. So that it's evolved in everything that the predators and the prey and the single cell organisms and the non-brain having hydras and everything has a sleep cycle is almost this sort of symbioticness of we all evolved on this same planet. We all started from the same spot. We're all carrying around this evolutionary baggage from day one, four and a half billion years ago. And so we all kind of are in on the deal together. We all know we need it. So we're all kind of just taking turns, trying not to kill each other too bad <laughs> while, while, we, while we push and pull the boundaries of, of survivable situations. And uh, it's, it's kind of an interesting little uh, sort of social contract amongst all creatures uh, for all <laughs> evolutionary time that we're all just cool with this. We're not going to fuck each other over for sleeping. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very interesting too because it's as you describe sort of this like almost cost benefit analysis as far as the chemistry, the biochemistry goes. Really you can boil sleep down to that. Uh and if you can boil sleep down to that, you can boil all of life down to just this cost-benefit analysis. Um, really just a, a natural, not even an analysis, it's like just a natural, you know, going against the concentration gradient or with it mm-hmm. sort of aspects. The, the reason that we can uh, pump, you know, sodium and potassium in and out of our cells so that we can have it just naturally flow whenever we need it to cause something else to happen is sort of this ability to control balance in a way that can then be beneficial when needed. As my freshman biology professor put it, um, you know, homeostasis, like maintaining balance and everything, means keeping thing things out of equilibrium because equilibrium means death when you have all of the water that's in your body at the same concentration as it is in the sofa you're sitting on then you're dead (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) so (laughs) the (laughs) the the trade-off of everything is very interesting that it just happens to naturally work this way and it shows of course, the course of evolution throughout everything, because you can look at even bacteria and their dormant cycle, which you could almost kind of compare to a sleep cycle. Um, Sleep has some other characteristics, which I think I can touch on in a minute, but bacteria themselves, whenever they're in a colony, there is a time when it gets very stressful, uh, that being there's too many bacteria cells around, so there's not enough food. So a large amount of them will go dormant. And whenever food becomes available, 
they wake up. But they don't all wake up at the same time. In fact, there's always like a percentage of them that remain asleep, that are slow to wake bacteria. And it this seems to come from some evolutionary, uh, I don't know, holdover of whenever there's times where there's, you know, stressors and they need to go to sleep and wake up. If they all woke up and the situation was like not as not as good as they all imagined, then they would all die off. Mm-hmm. So a lot of bacteria will have like 10% or something that remain asleep so that they can continue on if the other group wakes up and dies off. Ah. This happens in like chronic infections, chronic bacterial infections. Um, there are some courses of antibiotics that kill off a large amount, but the antibiotics themselves are attacking the like reproduction cycle of bacteria. And the reproduction cycle happens when they're awake. But if you have a bacterial infection from a type that a large percentage remains dormant, then they're not awake. They're not reproducing. So they're not ingesting the antibiotic or having it attached to the protein on the cell membrane. So once you're finished with the course, all of those bacteria are gone, so competition is way down, so there's more abundant food, so then those wake up and continue to infect, you know, cause uh, symptoms of an infection to the person. So it's kind of interesting that it there's like this specific protein that they found relates to this dormant and slow waking aspect of it, mm-hmm. and it's really just a link uh, between two peptides that cause like pores on the outside to be open or closed. And whenever they're dormant, the pores are in one position and then this peptide gets broken and then the pore degrades and the cells are able to energize energize again by absorbing nutrients. So, you know, that's life. But at the same time, you can see how that is nothing that the bacteria is deciding upon right it's totally just an imbalance and then a trade-off of when things are beneficial for it to continue then it continues it's like you know just water constantly moving and that's where sleep gets weird because it is this evolutionary inherited trait but it is also a cultural and societal behavior <laughs> mm-hmm. so you know there there that's why this question is a big question is it like the chicken or egg type of question because we often describe it as if it is this um, cultural behavior rather than a evolutionary trait um, we don't we don't describe like being hungry or eating like that we describe that as like, oh, there's a biological imperative that we must eat. If we don't, we're going to die. Um, and cool, we eat hamburgers now, but maybe in the future we'll eat a protein bars made out of cockroaches or whatever. But it doesn't change what we think about the biological imperative of hunger and eating is. Whereas with sleep, we're like, ah, well, you know, 
I could pull an all-nighter. Ah, uh, oh, I can fucking screw that. I, you know, I've I've been doing great. It's if in fact I wear it as a badge of honor that I only sleep two hours a night and I work fifteen hours a day. Like I'm a badass because of that. But you wouldn't say that about yourself if you were like, yeah, I only eat one meal a week. <laughs> 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 screw you, biology. Look how much I'm owning you. Like no one would say that. So there is this, uh, I don't know, it's kind of weird. You have the same like biological imperative on a lot of these things, and yet we don't. You can even be shown like the direct evidence that you need to sleep. This is the type of quality sleep that has evolved in other species and has evolved in humans over hundreds of thousands of years. This is what we're set up for. Um, and then people be like, oh, that's some great advice. And then they they won't. They just won't do it. <laughs> like they'll, yeah. they'll stay up and they'll, they'll they'll stay up late looking at their phone, or they'll you know be so concerned about the meeting they're going to have tomorrow morning with uh, with with some business partner that they won't be able to sleep at all. And um, we do the like not just that, but the things that we do to prevent ourselves from sleeping beyond like caffeine and. Like in the army or in the military, like they give you amphetamines. Like it's not this uh, fucking uh, you know Nazi thing that oh man that was that was Hitler's secret weapon. He was giving all his all his uh, soldiers meth. No, the, all all the American soldiers and British soldiers and <laughs> Japanese soldiers in World War Two, we all had meth. Everyone was doing greenies. Everyone was on meth amphetamines. Like, and that's still the case today. It, you know, drinking a gallon of coffee and taking greenies so that you can stay awake on a long flight and all those types of things. So we know, <laughs> we know about how important it is. And we know like that it's, you know, has a biological impetus. And yet all we are doing is trying to figure out why that is so we can not have to do it anymore. <laughs> mm -hmm. Just figure out the way where I can, uh, I can just juice myself and then I don't have to sleep for two weeks and I don't have any of the um, downside effects of not sleeping for two weeks. Because, yeah. I mean, you won't... In, in the, the other sort of evidence-based deal here is that you won't die from not sleeping. That's the other sort of trick here is like, while eating... If you don't eat, you will die. If you don't drink water, you will die. But if you don't sleep, you won't die. It's not going to kill you. Um, and there's been, you know, studies of people that have been kept awake for days on end. Um, the brain adjusts. Your body adjusts because biologically it knows it needs to go through these this sort of dormant cycle. So if it knows that you are going to resist having a dormant cycle like the rest of humans do and you're not going to actually lay down for six hours and have a dormant cycle, the body will say after a few days, it'll be like, okay, he's not going to go to sleep. So what we're going to do is we're going to just slowly shut down 10% here and then bring it back online. And we're going to shut down 5% here and bring it back online at different times. And we're just going to sort of do these rolling blackouts <laughs> of your brain and different body activities. And uh, like for a while, we'll shut down your entire immune system. 
and then it'll slowly come back online. And for a while, we we're not we're just gonna focus all of our energy on purging the the bile and it shit that's in your stomach and your liver. Um, and then that'll, you know, then we'll stop doing that and go back to digesting food. Uh, the, the body will adapt in a way that it will find, you know, the nooks and crannies to get those dormant cycles for all of its biological needs, even without you ever being like, okay, I'm going to finally lay down and go to sleep. Um, so that was another interesting finding for me. Cause you know, I, would have figured that if this is down like to the metabolic rate of individual cells, if that is where the origin of sleep comes from, like you would die if you don't have it. But if the body can go down to almost an individual cell level and just turn them off and on and then, and you know, in sequences where you can stay awake and aware while the body's doing that, then you don't really need to actually go to sleep which is where the sort of forefront of all of this research is, is can we figure out a way to where we can intentionally put the body into that mode and then we can have super soldiers that never sleep? <laughs> yeah, uh, which we definitely need. Yeah. Um, but it is like the, don't dolphins uh, like turn half their brain off essentially? Mm-hmm. And they, um, they appear awake. And birds too. The dinosaurs. They do it as well. Um, and I think uh, elephants spend almost all of their time awake. Yeah. And uh, even though they got bats. like the biggest brains, they yeah. like, they don't need to sleep, but maybe a couple hours <laughs> every night. Brown bats sleep almost the entire day. Yeah. And they incredibly small, small brains. brains. <laughs> so, no algebra going on there. Yeah. So the, if you're thinking like the, th- that's where it's interesting, like, when you really start to study sleep from a biological perspective, all of the little pop science and evaluations of sleep from a human perspective sort sort of don't make sense anymore. Um, but there are some interesting things about the way that humans sleep and trying to figure how people are trying to figure out what the purpose of it is for the brain. How is the brain utilizing this sort of evolutionarily developed biological trait to take advantage of doing some things that would be advantageous to us. So it's not necessarily the brain is deciding to go to sleep. The brain is living inside of an organism that has sleep functions as part of the metabolic rate of all of its cells. So when the body has this biological function of needing to put those things into a dormant state, the brain then says, okay, well, since the body's not doing any of this stuff and all these things are dormant, I have an opportunity to do a lot of functions that I cannot do when the individual is aware and awake. So that's where there's a lot of sort of hypothesis that during the brain in the hippocampus, you're doing a lot of offloading of things that you came into contact with in that day. Like the all the new experiences you had that day, the peace people you met that day, the uh, novel conversation you had that day, uh, the ad that you saw on Instagram that day, all of that gets uh, like put in this temporary storage in your hippocampus, and um, that can only hold so much before it's overflowing. That's only you know that's a certain size bin, and, and you have to in a sleep cycle, your brain is 
offloading that bin. It's unloading it and then storing that stuff from this short-term temporary memory and putting it into this long-term hierarchy so that you can call back and remember it later. And also so that now that bin is free and empty again to start the next day so that you can fill it up with a bunch of whatever you experienced that next day. Um, so those are sort of the thoughts about why or, or what your brain is doing while you're asleep. And then that, of course, leads to a bunch of other stuff about studying brain activity during sleep that has to do with dreams. And we could do a whole nother episode on just the EEG and electrical signals of dreams and the uh, very burgeoning uh, real technology of dream scanners. Because I came across some shit on dream scanning and it's pretty <laughs> fucking miraculous. Okay. Yeah, let's do that another time because I, I need to look this up. Um. As much as the research as we've been speaking about, you know, deals with brains, though, uh, that was certainly one thing that people really, and this goes back to like the article you shared, um, people started researching more because they realized every sleep study up to that point had only been, you know, on animals that could you could fit electrodes to. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so this sleep psychologist at the University of Zurich was wondering if invertebrates sleep. And instead of choosing a normal invertebrate, <laughs> she went with cockroaches um, <laughs> because she had observed uh, what she thought was sleep. And uh, in her telling was, you know, ridiculed for studying cockroaches in their sleep for a long time. But now science bugs don't is finally... sleep. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they, they only live for like a day or something. Um, but with cockroaches, she realized uh, and looking back at some early 1900s research on sleep studies before electrodes existed, uh, sleep has a behavior. And you were describing this in the you know hunter gatherer groups with the bamboo slats and the non bamboo slats mm -hmm. um there is a behavior to sleep that you could start to jot down and seems to be kind of universal where you can use this as some criteria uh, so the main things are a sleeping animal does not move around it is harder to rouse than one that's simply resting. Uh, it may take a different pose than when awake, or it may seek out a specific location to sleep. And then, once awake, it normally behaves sluggishly. So a sleeping animal that has been disturbed uh, will, you know, be all groggy, sort of, or move slower. And then... This is like this uh, researcher's own criteria to add that seems to have been replicated in experiments. They uh, will sleep for longer later. Like their next sleep cycle will be to try and catch up on that oh. disturbed sleep. Okay. Um, and she did these studies on cockroaches and you can look at like the diagram. She's got like the different angles that they sleep at and how how awake that 
correlates to things. Yeah, she's got her little geometric angle key that shows, yeah, oh, yeah. look how it's getting awake. The angle of its back is, is increasing. <laughs> yeah, it's going from 9 degrees to 15 degrees. <laughs> it's ready to pounce. Uh, she ended up doing this these studies on 20 do, 22 different species, um, including a whole bunch with brains, but also scorpions, and found that this criteria fits among all of these different species. Um, so what's funny, what's what's interesting, is then people were like, all right, well, can we take this and apply it to other species? And in fact, they have... And have found, weirdly, that fruit flies are a great way to study uh, the behavior and metabolic processes of sleep and translate it to humans. Mm -hmm. Uh, So fruit flies are like a pretty common um, model organism. I mean, that's redundant. Uh, But they're studied for a whole lot of things just because they're... Uh, metabolism is pretty simple and easy to sparse out. They've got like and their the their whole genome. genome has been mapped for a while, which oh, makes a it, long time, yeah. yeah, which makes it very easy to uh, be like, okay, we're gonna, you know, pu- push uh, this one and see what that button does, and then we'll push this one and see what that button does, type of approach. Yeah, which is you know you can look up those studies and see what happens when they turn genes off. Um, <laughs> it gets real Some crazy real gross. mutant flies. Yeah, uh, but they also progenerate you know super fast, uh, which which helps. But anyways, they've they've put these behaviors onto fruit flies in experiments and been able to parse out the like. metabolic molecular mechanisms that associate with these different characteristics and it's pretty great how it how it translates to those things um they've gone one further and done c elegans the nematode Ah. uh, which i i studied in college uh not to brag um and (laughs) The C. elegans is a you know a, another model organism, very famous because it only has 959 body cells, um, apart from any gonads and 302 neurons uh, that are located in like clusters around the head. So it's very easy to observe. But unlike other creatures, they started seeing like this this pattern of sleep and realize that they don't sleep for a portion of time every day. They sleep for short portions during development, and then it's almost a sprint through adulthood, uh, and they die real fast. It's like, I think mm-hmm. they live maybe 7, 10 days. So they've started to parse out this criteria as far as, like, you know, they. it's not that you have to sleep every day, but it seems to be that almost every animal sleeps Mm -hmm. um they've gone so far as like jellyfish and hydra which i think like the article started out speaking about yeah and we talked about the jellyfish too um when we were doing the uh sense of vision in our summer census series um Uh because we were talking about how the eyes of a jellyfish is just a couple photoreceptive cells that are like on the edges of its body and um when they 
you know, we're testing the sensitivity of these things to light to see if they actually were photoreceptor cells. They would do different uh, hues of light, different wavelengths of light in the tank. And they, when they put a, uh, like a green, I think it was green uh, light, it induced a sleep state in these little bitty jellyfish, which are like the same as they were three and a half billion years ago in the primitive ocean like the same creatures they had the direct descendants so the fact that they had a sleep state where they would flip themselves upside down and like slowly go to the bottom of the tank and then when they like got the daylight um wavelength put on them they would turn over and like swim up to the top because that would be more when uh it was time to feed uh showed that even they had like a circadian rhythm and a sleep cycle. And that's like one of the most simplest creatures that we have going in the evolutionary cycle of everything. Yeah, it's kind of funny. The these studies on sleep for these jellyfish, it was very hard to to study the it's called sleep homeostasis. That's like the, you know, um being gently awoken and then groggy mm-hmm. uh it's very hard to see if a jellyfish is groggy uh but <laughs> the you, way you that, poke it with a pencil and the pencil just goes right through it <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah you can't like poke them because that's that's very disturbing yeah. you know um so they had to because these jellyfish would like kind of float down when they were in their sleep state and not not pulse at the same rate as their daytime kind of feeding pulsing they ended up like building a larger tank and having like a platform halfway in between it so that whenever they wanted to wake them up they would like remove the platform so that they would then like sink you know begin to sink faster and that would jolt them awake Mm -hmm. enough uh but then they later on would sleep for longer periods because they had not completed their sleep cycle. So they got stressed out and were like, oh man, I'm really going to need that nap. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, they took their nap. (laughs) Um, So it's kind of crazy. All of this stuff, as you're saying, like if sleep developed, you know, 3.5 billion years ago and we observe similar characteristics in bacteria Uh, which came before plants. So, of course, we see the same thing sort of in plants. It's very interesting that it it appears to be just something that, you know, part of the body shuts down so that other parts of the body or cell or whatever can operate in a way that maintains some efficiency. It's it's just as important as waking. Yeah. Well, that's about all I have. Um, there's some cool stuff. Um, if you, PBS has a pretty good Nova documentary from a couple years ago on, um, just sort of the mysteries of sleep, because even with, um, even with all of this research and even with the entire military industrial complex behind trying to keep soldiers awake indefinitely, uh, there's a lot of uh, just unsolved stuff. It, most of these research studies have shown observations that then can lead to sort of 
correlative understandings between certain behaviors. But like we talked about before, if sleep is a evolutionary thing that goes all the way back to the origin of life, then it's also diversified in many ways and has been interwoven with societal behavior and other pressures that aren't necessarily just evolutionary survival pressures. Um, so there is some stuff to be wondered about uh, and wonder like exactly how we're going to utilize this information in the future, um, especially when it comes to just our overall individual health um, as we learn about how sleep affects our immune systems and um, and other things uh, and how, and affects our memories there you know there's correlative stuff that shows that uh, you know your metabolic rate and things is actually higher when you're asleep um, and many people you uh, you're burning more calories during your sleep cycle than you do in your wake cycle Um because of that. So, you know, there's questions as to why, uh, is there ways to counteract, uh, obesity and, and, and modern humans, if we can regulate better sleeping structure for them. And then there's also, um, correlations that show that maybe, um, our sort of modern lifestyle and the way that we sleep now, um, and the fact that we're living longer because we're in a much safer environment than we evolved in, if that plays any kind of role in these later um, mental disorders that we have when we age, like Alzheimer's and dementia, um, just because maybe some of the functions that our brain does for house cleaning, uh, organizing, categorizing, um, all of the experiences that we have every day, if those functions sort of wane because as we age, we don't get the right level of deep sleep anymore. Um, maybe because just we're older and uh, it's harder to go to sleep because our brain chemistry isn't as, you know, quick to fire when we need that melatonin hit to when we lay down. But also because as you get older, like, you got to pee a lot <laughs> and you got to, and if your body is regulating a lot of its waste development during your sleep time. So there is a lot of correlation that shows like, uh, you have, uh, you're more likely to have bowel movements in the middle of the night. You're more likely to need to pee in the middle of the night. Um, and then once that interrupts your sleep cycle, if it's tougher for you to activate natural melatonin to put you back asleep, then that's why when your grandfather wakes up at three 30 in the morning to take a piss, then he's just up for the rest of the day because he can't mm -hmm. go back to sleep. And if he's not getting that level of sleep anymore, then he's not able to do the brain cataloging that he needs to do. And then that can potentially lead to these problems with Alzheimer's and dementia. So there's a lot to be figured out here. Um, a lot of smoking guns, a lot of connecting the dots, um, but not a lot of direct causation for a, a lot of these things has been discovered yet. We're still very much in the hypothesis stage on the research. Yeah, it's especially because the sleep for so long, they were like, oh, we got these new toys. We can see what the brain does. Yeah. Um, so it, it's an interesting field. <laughs> it's it's it was in the 1970s 
when Irene was suggesting that uh, cockroaches sleep and everyone laughed at her. <laughs> so yeah. it's it's been barely 40 years of us being like, you know what? Um, maybe insects sleep. <laughs> so, so again, we're at another thing where uh, things that seem like maybe it should have been like settled science, you know, centuries ago, because we've all been around, you know, creatures the entire, you know, extent of human history. Uh, kind of only got discovered in in our lifetime, basically. <laughs> the, yeah. the 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 consensus that okay, I guess insects have a sleep cycle didn't happen until after I was born. <laughs> so there there's just kind of another thing where you find out we're like, wow, life life before uh, millennials were born was just a time where people had no idea what <laughs> anything was going on. <laughs> No, people were not validated, and now they're validated. Finally. Yeah. All right. That's all I got. Good job, Eric. All righty. Bye.